It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Given that Sir David Amos was a political opponent of mine, a conservative of a certain hue, I had remarkably good relations with him. In fact, on one or two things, maybe more than two, we agreed substantively and so had plenty to talk about virtually every day for almost 30 years when we'd pass each other in the corridor, uh, sit down in the tea room, uh, chink tea mugs with each other on issues that we agreed on. They were precious few, uh, but those that we agreed on were significant issues. Once I made a speech opposing euthanasia in the uh, chamber of the House of Commons, and Sir David Amos warmly congratulated me on it because it was the beginning of the slippery liberal slope that I believed would lead to uh, some canyons of horror. There were other issues too, animal cruelty, issues like abortion, uh, issues like fire safety, issues like fuel poverty, on which Sir David Amos had a point of view which was at least in touch with my side of the house. But I will remember him always as a champion of his constituency. He represented it for nearly 40 years. He represented two Essex constituencies, very similar in character. And he did so with an effervescence, almost a childlike effervescence, always demanding uh, city status uh, for his constituency. And I hope now that as a tribute to the fallen MP, that city status will now be extended to Southend. He was a cheerful, happy man. And that's why I think of the last moments, the last seconds of his life with particular blood-chilling horror. There he was, aged 69, a father of five, a devoted husband and father in a little room, in a church, in his constituency, sitting with his notepad and with his pen, ready to take down the details of constituents' problems. And with his customary zeal, I know that he would have pursued them uh, to the end. And then into his room came a 25-year-old, former constituent, now living in a rather ritzy part of London, Kentish Town, came in and allegedly knifed the old man 12 times, leaving him bleeding to death on the floor. 
no one to defend him, no one to help him. It is obscene uh, that Sir David Amos met that end. It is almost ridiculous that the alleged killer, and how often does this happen? It was said to be known to the security services, was said to have been referred, whatever that means, to the prevent anti-terrorism, anti-extremism program, and yet was allowed to find himself in a small room with a 69-year-old MP and allegedly hack him to death. That's almost ridiculous. Where's the joined up writing in that? As I understand it, I could be wrong, but as I understand it, this man made an interview request in his own name for an appointment with Sir David Amos MP, even though it was many years since he lived in the constituency. He allegedly told David's staff that he had newly moved back into the area. That means the parliamentary staff were dealing with him in setting up an interview. How is it possible that no system exists after what's happened in Britain over the last 10 years or more because David Amos's murder was not the first. Joe Cox's was not the first attempt at murder. Stephen Timms, a former minister in the Blair government, was multiply stabbed at his constituency in 2010. Nigel Jones, in his constituency, was attacked with a samurai sword and his office manager murdered with that sword, trying to protect him. How is it possible after all of this that no parliamentary system exists whereby such a person making an interview request, looking for an appointment with a defenseless MP was not flagged by the security services who are listening to me right next door. What kind of idiots are you? If this man was so extreme that he was known to you, referred by you to an anti-terrorism program, how was he able to make an appointment to see an MP and then allegedly murder him? And one of the disturbing aspects of this whole affair is the way in which it is being used not to force us to get to grips with an incipient and growing number of Islamist fanatic terrorists in Britain, but instead to close down anonymity on Twitter as if this alleged killer was incited to allegedly murder David Amos 
because he got angry on Facebook. What does it have to do with civility in political discourse? As the former Home Secretary said on television yesterday, we need to stop questioning politicians' motives. No, we will not. We, in a democracy, not only have a right to, yes, vitriolic criticism of the idiots that rule us and the bigger idiots that oppose the rulers. It's not just a right, it's a duty in a democracy to subject our ruling class of politicians and administrators to the most rigorous cross-examination, criticism, condemnation. But that's not what moved this alleged murderer. This alleged murderer was motivated by the murder cult that is ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Why is nobody talking about that? Why are we talking about people's posts on Facebook? There are two reasons why. Some of you will like one of them. Some of you will like the second one. The sensible of you will listen carefully to both of them. The first reason that we are not talking about the fact that there are tens of thousands of people of concern to the security services next door walking among us, living among us, some of them harboring the wish, the bloodlust to do what this alleged killer did on Friday. The first reason is that we are in alliance as a country with some of these extremists in different parts of the world. You see, we supported them in Libya. We even harbored them in Manchester. And one of their sons murdered dozens of our children at the Manchester Arena. We supported them in Syria with a king's ransom of hundreds of millions of British taxpayers' money to Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the alphabet soup of Islamist extremist organizations. We gave them guns, we gave them money, and above all, we gave them endless, endless propaganda support. We supported them in Libya, right up to and including their gruesome murder of the Libyan leader, Gaddafi. Nobody in the British media shed a tear for the murder of that politician. Neither would they have if these people had gotten into the presidential palace in Damascus and murdered the Syrian president in the same way, we supported them in Iraq. Imagine, 
None of them shed a tear for the judicial murder of the Iraqi leader. We support them in China, where we call it a Uyghur genocide, when in fact it is the local chapter of Al-Qaeda and ISIS that the Chinese government is confronting. We supported them in Chechnya because we didn't like the president of Russia. We have supported them in Afghanistan, perhaps most extraordinarily. Let me be clear with you. I am not neutral when it comes to these Islamist fanatic extremists. Not for me, the idea that my enemy's enemy is my friend. If my enemy's enemy is worse than my enemy, uh, then I'm prepared to unite with my enemy to destroy the enemy's enemy where the enemy is worse. And the second reason, this is the part that lefties won't like. The second reason that we can't discuss what actually appears to have happened is that since David Amos lay on the ground, his life's blood ebbing away, being refused incidentally, the last rites of the Catholic Church by an idiot police officer that said it's a crime scene, you can't go in, to a priest with oils seeking to grant the de facto default last wish of any dying Roman Catholic. But since that blood was shed on Friday, hundreds of fighting age, mainly Muslims, have landed on the beaches of the south coast of England. Most of them will be harmless, except for the 80 pounds a night the British taxpayer will pay for many years to put them up in a hotel, they having fled from war-torn, famine-stricken France. But most of these people landing on these beaches, many of them Muslim, are young, fighting-age men, amongst whom there can, might, probably will be others who might take a knife into a surgery or into the parliament or into the shopping center or down the high street to murder your mother or mine. We can't talk about that because we aren't doing anything about that. And 300 landed from Friday till now Sunday night. Twice as many have landed this year as landed last year, and it's only October. So for these two reasons, we would rather push the actual issue, the elephant in the room, into the corner, out of sight. And <laughs> put the blame on Facebook demand more censorship, demand more policing of political speech, 
closed down more accounts, throttle more freedoms that exist in this country. I'll tell you what's got to change here. Not us. It's not our way of life that has to change. It's the terrorists that have to change. And if they won't, they have to be locked up. They have to be deported. And on the battlefields abroad, they have to be destroyed. We did nothing wrong. We just exercised our rights as a free country. And now we're being asked to murder those rights in the wake of the murder of an MP. We're being told no more surgeries. I sat in surgeries for almost 30 years, every single weekend, met thousands upon thousands of constituents who had the right to see me and ask me for my help. We mustn't change that. If we begin to change that, what do we have? A bloated political caste armored against proper criticism and analysis by new anti-free speech laws and regulations. We don't want our democracy to die with David Amos, do we? If your answer to that is yes, we do, you need to take a long, hard look at yourself. And then there's the question of double standards. Why am I wearing a hat? Because somebody tried to kill me in broad daylight and nobody gave a toss about it. Not even the judge that sent him to jail who made it about me while sending someone who hospitalized me to prison. And not one section of the British media and political class said that. And when I asked the Speaker of the House of Commons, the dwarfish, Berkow, for protection, he refused it. When I asked him for permission to be able to protect myself, he refused it because it was only me. And they hated me and my politics. They would have preferred that the man that attacked me hadn't done so, but because they liked his politics, they did nothing about it. And only Peter Oborn, only Peter Oborn, then of the BBC, pointed out whilst I was still bleeding that this sort of thing could catch on, you know. And the next person to be attacked, the next person to be nearly murdered, the next person to be murdered, might be somebody you like rather than somebody you hate. We're going to talk about this and many, many other things in the course of the next two hours and a half or 35 minutes or 
So there's a poll ready. After the murder of Sir David Amos, should the death penalty be brought back? It's a simple binary question. A, yes, B, no. And you can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube, and on my Telegram. Get voting. Now, of course, the David Amos story has dwarfed all others. Uh, but before uh, David's uh, slaying his murder most foul, events in Northern Ireland looked like they were going to be the big issue of this week. The Northern Ireland Protocol, signed under duress by the British government uh, in order to get the withdrawal agreement uh, through, signed in defiance of promises made by Boris Johnson uh, to the people of Northern Ireland and since proving unworkable at least to an important section of the community there. It was said that it was immutable, it was carved in stone like the tablets on the mount. Nothing could be changed until they were. The EU, who were never going to compromise on the Northern Ireland Protocol, hey presto, they compromised. Let's hear what happened from Professor Jonathan Tong, the Professor of Political Science at the University of Liverpool. Professor, welcome back. Always a pleasure uh, to uh, talk with you. Uh, just bring us up to date for those that haven't followed uh, as closely as you will have. Where do we now stand on the Northern Ireland Protocol? Well, as you said in your introduction, George, the EU has moved on the question of the protocol. The protocol was set up to protect the European Union's single market. It created a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, a trading border between GB and NI, uh, with lots of checks at border control posts. Basically, everything that was going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland would be deemed at risk of going into the EU single market, deemed at risk of going south of the border on the island of Ireland, and therefore it was liable to checks. What the EU has offered this week is basically to reduce those checks by around 50%, uh, get rid of some checks up to 80% on such things as, as livestock checks, but overall a reduction of 50%. And I suppose the question beg now is, you know, will that be sufficient for those unionists who've always been opposed to a seaboard between Great Britain and Northern Ireland? Uh, will it be enough for them? And of course, will it be enough for the British government? Because Lord Frost, as Brexit minister, has made clear that he wants a protocol mark two rather than simply reductions in a few checks. Uh, Lord Frost, as Brexit minister, has threatened to trigger, trigger Article 16, suspending the protocol, which would put the whole thing into abeyance for, for up to a year, whilst there would be renegotiations about a second a son or daughter of protocol. So there's all to play for. I'd expect some pretty tough negotiations now between the UK and the EU uh, until at least Christmas time and possibly beyond. Well, let's deal with the first barrier uh, first, the first hurdle. Is it enough to pacify uh, those in the uh, unionist community? Uh, is 50% uh, going to satisfy them? It won't satisfy hardline loyalists, those who've been taken to the street and, of course, those who rioted 
uh, only in April last year. For them, it's not about sausages and you know <laughs> diminishing checks on coat on chilled meats going from GB to Northern Ireland. It's not about sausages. It's about sovereignty for them. They're insulted by any sort of border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland because they regard them as two sovereign parts of the United Kingdom, two integral parts of the United Kingdom. It won't be enough for the traditional Unionist voice, which has one assembly seat, hardline Unionist party. It might be enough for the Ulster Unionist party led by Doug Beatty, the second largest Unionist party within the assembly. They don't want to bring down the Northern Ireland institutions in opposition to the protocol. So that then begs the question, what about the DUP, the largest unionist party led by Sir Geoffrey Donaldson? There things become very tricky. Geoffrey Donaldson said that he wanted meaningful reform of the protocol. He said reform. He didn't use the term reductions in the number of checks. So I think it's a question of which way the DUP goes here, because the DUP at the moment are standing by their threat that if there's not change, really substantial change to the protocol by the end of November, they may walk away from Stormont and in effect collapse uh, the Good Friday Agreement, or at least it's the political institutions associated with that agreement. And that really begs the question, well, how will we be able to get back those institutions if they do come tumbling down? Well, of course, they have an incentive to do that because not only is the Sinn Féin vote rising, or the broader nationalist camp rising, uh, but uh, new pretenders to the crown uh, of, uh, of Northern Ireland uh, unionism are arising. You made the point, the traditional unionist voice only have one member in the assembly, but if the election was held tomorrow, uh, they very well might take over from the DUP as the biggest uh, party. So the knowledge that one is to be hanged in the morning concentrates the mind wonderfully, as Dr. Johnson said. If I were Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, I, I, I really would not want to be facing the electorate uh, in the spring of next year. Yeah, the DUP are in trouble. If you look at the, the recent polls, the Unionist vote is split three ways. And remember, under the Northern Ireland system, the largest party will take the first ministership of Northern Ireland. So at the moment, Sinn Féin are very much on course to take the first ministership whenever the election is. We assume that the institutions will survive until next May when there's going to be a, an election anyway. The DUP need a minor miracle now. They need to hoover up the votes that appear to have gone over to the two other unionist parties. They need a minor miracle if they're gonna cling on to their top dog status within Northern Ireland you know, to, to keep the first ministership. That would be a grievous blow, the loss of the first ministership, to, to Eunice. It would be the first time it had ever happened. And it would be another step, uh, at least symbolically, towards the United Ireland. You can call the first minister and the deputy first minister co-equals, and legally they are. But in symbolic terms, for Eunice to lose the first ministership, what does that say about the long-term future of Northern Ireland? It would be a pretty bleak message uh, for the Eunice. There are other reasons, I should say, that why the DUP have become less enamoured with Stormont though. They, they've not been able to veto other legislation, whether it be on same-sex marriage, whether it be on abortion, and the Westminster has said that it will introduce Irish language legislation this autumn. So the DUP, which was once top dog and which could veto stuff that it didn't like at Stormont, the DUP is no longer in that dominant position. And I think that has led to disenchantment in the ranks and opposition to the protocol is the catalyst in many ways for that opposition. Yeah, uh, as I always thought that Brexit would be 
uh, although that wasn't widely understood by former friends of mine in the North. Let's go to the other hurdle then, the British government one. Uh, what does Lord Frost do? What does Boris Johnson do? Well, Lord Frost has been talking in very hardline terms. I heard him speak at a conference I was at Oxford uh, last month, and then I was an observer at the Conservative Party conference, a very poorly attended speech, it should be said. The Conservatives didn't bother getting out of bed to hear, you know, one of the most crucial constitutional uh, speeches of our time in some ways, uh, 10 past nine in the morning, and there was about 50 people in the whole of the Conservative Party's auditorium wow. in Manchester. It was, it was thin, thinly veiled stuff. What they heard got the very small numbers there to their feet because it was a hardline belligerent speech from Lord Frost that basically said that the EU needs to budge. We're not going to budge. If the EU won't budge, we'll trigger Article 16 and suspend the protocol. And basically what has emerged since, if you believe Dominic Cummings, is, is quite how much the British government never really believed in the protocol. It was signed, as you said in the introduction, under duress to, to some extent. Uh, it was about getting Brexit done to win a general election. And we'll try and, you know, unhinge this, this protocol afterwards. And of course, there was the famous visit of Boris Johnson to the DUP conference where he told them that, that they would that he would never sign such a such a deal producing a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So A, the British government doesn't really believe in the protocol, and B, I think the British government would like to down the protocol. That's obviously, you know, wonderful news news for Eunice in Northern Ireland but will enrage nationalists and others within Northern Ireland. It should be said that Lord Frost has said that he does believe there will still be a treaty where Northern Ireland will still be subject to some EU rules exceptionally, unlike any other part of the UK. So even Lord Frost doesn't believe that the protocol will disappear altogether, but he is looking at the moment for a, a very, very different version from the one that the EU envisages uh, the one that Maris Sefcovic is the European Commission Vice President dealing with this envisages. And I'm not sure where, where the big compromise comes here beyond what the EU offered, that is a reduction in checks this week. Why did the EU make these concessions? I think partly the EU was, was spooked by the riots that took place in uh, Northern Ireland in April. You know, there's not much point in keeping the border on the island of Ireland soft, which everyone agrees with, and many people you know, on the island of Ireland wouldn't like a border, full stop on the island of Ireland, but there's no point in keeping that border soft if you create another border, which leads to violence within Northern Ireland. So I think that was part of the equation. I think secondly, the EU began to take Lord Frost seriously, that he wasn't for budging and that he would trigger Article 16 to suspend the protocol. And thirdly, I think that the EU began to realise that the UK government, whatever its, its flaws, isn't that interested in trying to get backdoor access to the EU single market or try to under undermine the EU single market by flooding it with, with goods uh, and breaking trading rules. You know, the, the UK is much more interested in Brexit than it is about undermining the EU's, EU single market. If it was cared that much about EU, the EU single market, it would have tried to stay in it rather than go for the, the harder Brexit. So I think there's been recognition of that on the, on the EU side that they don't need the level of checks that they initially thought they would to protect their own single market. You can really do a lot of this stuff uh, fairly light touch, but you know, 50% of a sea border is still a sea border for units who don't like the idea in constitutional terms. I don't think you can really ultimately solve that constitutional issue. If Lord Frost is prepared to accept a, a son or daughter of 
the current protocol, then you do still have that constitutional issue that annoys unionists, that in effect one part of the UK is on, is on trading on very different economic terms than other parts of the United Kingdom. Has it all brought a border poll and the potential for reunification closer? There's some evidence that uh, of a, a slight shift towards favouring Irish unity. If you look at the, the poll of polls uh, that I did a, a, only this week, I think what will be the, the substantial shifts towards a border poll will be the next two elections, both north and south of the border. If Sinn Féin takes the first ministership, as I would expect, in the north, and if Sinn Féin becomes the largest party in government in the south, which it is certainly on course to do if you look at the opinion polls there, then, you know, if you've got Sinn Féin as the dominant part, player in government on the island of Ireland and both jurisdictions on the island, then, you know, it becomes more difficult to, to refuse a border poll. Under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, it's the call of the Secretary of State in the north who, uh, without any stated formal criteria, has to take account of public opinion and then can then call a border poll and then, and then can call one subsequently every seven years. Uh, I'm not sure that Brandon Lewis, as the current Secretary of State, is going to be calling a border poll anytime soon, but momentum will certainly gather if Sinn Féin has those election successes because Sinn Féin is unambiguously committed to a border poll uh, and to exercise that principle of consent that was there at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement, consent for a united Ireland. Professor, it's been a marvellous tour uh, of uh, the north of Ireland. Thanks very much indeed for helping us with that. Should I do some social media? What do you think? Stephen Hemmings uh, says, of course not. We shouldn't bring back the death penalty. We all have the right to create life. None of us has the right to take life. And Lachlan McNeil makes a very strong point, I think. I wouldn't trust them to get it right in cases where it wasn't a slam dunk. You just know what would happen. And Sean Smith says the death penalty does not stop people from committing horrible crimes. Look at America. And Trev says I would bring it back for paedophiles and rapists alone. Peter Marsh says or just put them in Belmarsh to hang around other like-minded people, counting down the days to try again. And Ray Walton says, this is too black and white. I voted yes, as I always felt that there should be a death penalty. However, it must only be applied for blatant, premeditated murder, including terrorism, but only where there is absolutely no element of doubt of the charged person's 100% guilt. Just say, up yours, the death penalty is for uncivilized countries. And David Martin says the savage wanted asylum in the UK. Glenn Ford says no death penalty for anyone. And BXP says David was actually one found most anti-war MPs in Parliament. And Celtic Man says there was a time that this 25-year-old would have had a 9 a.m. appointment with Mr. Pierpoint. And Shahid Latif says... Absolutely shocking news. Can't believe how anyone could do this to a member of parliament, this most evil crime. May God rest his soul. And Michael Curry says, David Amos, a Tory from humble beginnings. William Tell says, Mr. Galloway, clueless today. Well, thanks, William. And Nikakis says, the barbarians who call themselves 
Westerners created ISIS. And Michael C. says, stop funding terrorists. It backfired. Vinny says, wow, the best speech I've heard about the tragedy, George. Well said. Thank you, uh, indeed. How's the poll going, by the way? After the murder of Sir David, should the death penalty be brought back? Yes, 54%. No, 46%. 2,200 people have voted already. My goodness. Now, a uh, good friend of the show over many, many years uh, is Craig Murray. The Honourable Craig Murray was the British ambassador to Uzbekistan, who was memorably sacked by the Labour uh, government of uh, Tony Blair and Jack Straw. And I quote directly from his dismissal statement for over-focusing on human rights. Keep those words in your mind. Craig Murray, uh, a Scotsman, a man with whom I have many political disagreements, is a noble, learned, highly principled, determined, and courageous man. It's his birthday today. He would ordinarily be celebrating it with his young family. Uh, but in fact, he's celebrating it, if that's the word, like his friend Julian Assange behind bars in a prison. Yes, that's right. Britain sends journalists to jail. All the while lecturing others about the importance of freedom of expression and freedom of the press. Dr. Deepa Driver is an academic and trade unionist and herself a good friend of the show, and I'm glad to welcome her. Now, Dr. Deepa, thanks for joining us. It's a miserable state of affairs where a man uh, of Craig Murray's pedigree and, uh, well, I don't want to insult him, but he's not young, he's not, no spring chicken. He's got, no, he's, he's got uh, various health ailments, uh, and he's in uh, a Victorian jail. How come? Well, Craig's case is a case of somebody being stitched up for speaking truth to power. Now, Craig, as you rightly said, is a, is a very honorable man, a man of great integrity. And he's exposed serious criminality at the heart of Scottish government, at the heart of Nicola Sturgeon's government. And so uh, the establishment has come down hard. And, you know, there have been a number of reasons why Alex Salmond himself has um, has been exonerated in a by a predominantly female jury for uh, of the allegations that were laid against him. Unfortunately, the way the mainstream media has worked in the Salmond case uh, is such that none of the defence story, none of Alex's side of the argument, was ever really heard, except for what Craig Murray did. Now, Craig Murray did for Alex Salmond something very similar to, which, to what he did for Julian Assange, which was to let us know what was really going on in court. Because the rest of the media was simply not reporting it. Absolutely. And, and they were silent and they were intentionally silent. It was not a case of, um, of selective omission of certain things. It was just this unwillingness to challenge anything that the Sturgeon government um, might find 
unacceptable. And as you can imagine, Craig, being a deeply honourable man, had no, uh, made no effort really, or made no, had no intention of revealing the identity of the accusers. And he's been jailed on something called jigsaw identification. Now, this is a very, very poorly tested um, idea within the law. Jigsaw identification is when potentially you disclose some information which along with other information that somebody else might know, somebody who works in this person's office or somebody who's a close member of their team might know and might put together with the information you've disclosed to find the identity of the women. Now, Craig knew the identity of the women. He could have disclosed them much earlier had he chosen to do so before the restriction was put on. But uh, he, he, he could have disclosed it before it would have been a crime to do so. Indeed. I mean, there is a convention in Scotland not to disclose the names of sexual assault accusers. And like in England, there is no law in Scotland that says so. But as a convention, the media doesn't do so. And Craig certainly would not have done so. He could have done it. He didn't do it. And then they they used this made up framework of jigsaw identification to to suggest that Craig um, had identified the accusers. Of course, you will remember that all of these accusers' claims were thrown out of court. But even leaving that aside, what's really interesting is that when this, when Craig was accused of jigsaw identification to this day, he does not know whom he has identified. And that's not specified in the judgment. So nobody knows whom Craig has identified. And in a, in a poll that was conducted, in an opinion poll that was conducted, other mainstream journalists were cited 15 times as many as much as Craig by those who thought they might have been able to guess who you know who the accusers were so this is a real nonsense and it's it's a shame and a stain on the scottish judiciary that this case has been allowed to go through and the sentencing has been extremely harsh it's the first time in 50 years in the uk that um in the rest of the uk that such a a media contempt of court case has gone through and sec and and the second um 70 years in scotland and this is just um shows you what happens when you stand against the political establishment there's a number of uh, deeply disturbing aspects to the alex Salmond case i said so uh, from the beginning i'm not going to stop saying so now uh including this one and you and I are not going, of course, to break any laws. Uh, but if people did know the identity of the accusers, the entire Alex Salmond affair would look very, very different indeed. And so a grave injustice has been done to the falsely accused man, which is my second point. Every day when this is referred to in the media, even now, uh, these accusers are referred to as the victims, but they were not victims. Uh, their stories were disbelieved by the jury, the majority of whom were women. So when does an accuser cease to be described as the victim? And my third point is, for the great majority of people, Alex Salmon might just as well have been convicted. He was acquitted on every single count. But the media hatchet job, including the coverage of the trial, 
broken only by Craig Murray's small readership of a blog uh, from the upper gallery, the vast majority of coverage has left the vast majority of the public with the false belief that Alex Salmond was guilty when the jury cleared him on every single count. It is quite interesting how accusation has turned into, the fact that somebody accuses you has turned into a, um, a presumption of your guilt rather than a presumption of innocence. Even after you've been acquitted? Even after you've been acquitted. Imagine, then, well, let, let, let's take it out of this aspect, Doctor. Sure. If somebody accused me of punching them in the face and I was acquitted of having punched them in the face, how could that accuser continue to be described as a victim of my punching them in the face? I think we all, I mean, George, you more than anyone else, I guess, has exposed how the media kind of gang up on people and especially the mainstream media who, who engage in client journalism, who are looking to these same people who are in positions of power to give them tidbits of information so that they can hold on to their jobs. Now, Julian Assange changed that with WikiLeaks, where he allowed people to understand unfiltered what the truth really was. And Craig's present situation has to do both with his um, standing up to Nicola Sturgeon's um, coterie of people, but also importantly, standing up in the past in relation to Uzbekistan, as you rightly pointed out, in relation to Sierra Leone, in relation to the Chagos Islands, and more recently, in relation to Julian Assange. And the Iraq and, War, of course, he was a prominent opponent of the Iraq War. Indeed. And in all these situations, he has earned himself both the trust of people who follow him and who who understand that what he's doing is really important for them to understand what's going on behind closed doors. But also it's earned him the dislike of people who are in positions of power who do not like their authority challenged. So and what is him, his uh, current situation, doctor? Um, he's he he was sentenced to eight months in Sort Edinburgh Sorton Prison. What's really funny about that, well, it's funny and sad really, is that um, he was denied the right to do community service on grounds that he was too frail. And then, la you know, he he was then sentenced to eight months in prison. Given that short sentences are no longer. Um, liked in Scotland, it's very interesting that a journalist was sentenced to it. So we use the hashtag Scotland jails journalists if you're online. The other thing is that last night, uh, you know, Craig's quite ill, as you rightly pointed out in various ways. Um, we found out there's been a COVID outbreak in the vicinity of his cell. And the Scottish Justice Minister has been aware since the 1st of September that in Scotland, you can be sent on tagged home release early on if you're a criminal prisoner, that is if you've undertaken a criminal act, whereas if you're a civil prisoner, you can't be sent home early because there's a, an anomaly in the in the legislation that they put through because they didn't expect somebody like take. And, and I wonder whom it is convenient for that this anomaly is not rectified and Craig continues to stay in prison, where if he had been a criminal, he would have been home weeks ago. So he's going to be in prison until the 
um, towards the end of November, he'll be home in time for Christmas, hopefully. But until then, he's being denied access to his uh, little baby who's newly born, his ten year, his 12-year-old son, his older children, his partner, and the decent family life and the medical care he needs. Um, the, the officers at the prison, obviously, you know, usually I would say, oh, you know, prison staff, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I, I believe everybody's treating him reasonably well. And uh, he's he's grateful for that. And he's grateful for the friendships he's made in prison. And like any like any great person, I think he will come out of that prison with a new and renewed vigor and a new and renewed understanding of the challenges that many working class people who go to prison on the flimsiest of pretenses um, feel when you know when they have no voice there is a voice yet still for Craig Murray even if it's a small voice well i hope uh, i hope the prison diaries is uh, is a hot publishing property uh, early next year there is something of the oscar wilde about this crushing a butterfly on a wheel isn't there mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think so. I think I think it's quite shameful to see that Craig was denied the right to go to Spain to testify in relation to the to being spied upon within the embassy when he was, um, uh, you know, talking to Julian. And we know Julian was extensively spied upon in the embassy, um, including privileged conversations with his lawyers. In Craig's case, um, he's been denied the right to appeal, um, or rather. He, 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 they've not taken his appeal further. So he's never had a second hearing. And it's um, to take an, a 63-year-old man who's a who's a fantastic person of great integrity in this country, whose whose voice is very important in the in the grand scheme of history and in politics, and to send make him sit alone 23 hours a day inside a prison cell like his friend Julian Assange. There is a certain poignancy to that, really. It's very sad. Indeed. Dr. Deepa Driver, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows and a happy birthday, if that's possible, to the Honourable uh, Craig Murray. Uh, Luke Derbyshire says, murder has become normalised in the world we now live in. Just this past week, a few hundred Afghans have died while attending their local mosque, thanks to bombs set off by who knows who. Well, by ISIS. That's who. Glenn Ford says George needs to be back in Parliament, telling this to their ugly faces. And Heartless says, I think the Western politicians should spend more time on their people. 
instead of war on other peoples. And Greg says, you need to talk about Britain supporting and joining the US versus Afghanistan and the hate that incited. Well, I'm not usually told I need to talk more about uh, Britain and America's wars on Afghanistan. Uh, but I, I will be speaking, by the way, on these subjects uh, in South London, uh, I think next weekend, actually. Have we got the details there? Yeah, there we go. South London, uh, in the Shiraz Mirza Hall on Monday, the 25th of October, 7 p.m. So that's the night after this show next week, and you can get the tickets there. They're on the screen. There are still tickets available. We'll be showing the Killing Kelly film, the documentary on the strange death of Dr. David Kelly, and I'll be giving a speech about that and other matters. And you can, of course, come along and Q&A me. Uh, but I give uh, any ill-wishers notice that I shall be very strongly protected. Now, many have been fixated by the absolutely dramatic footage uh, of the volcanic eruption in La Palma. Uh, I don't know if everybody knows this. I didn't until this week. But the Yellowstone Park in the United States is a volcano so vast that if it blows, it will be the end of life on Earth. At least that's what my very clever friend told me. It would blot out the sun. It would uh, reverberate so across the world that it would begin and cause the destruction of human life on the planet. So volcanoes seem to be something we simply cannot tame. And that might be the only earthly force uh, that we have made no progress and presumably can make no progress in controlling. Uh, Dr. Richard Middlemas is from the Royal Academy of Engineering. He's a research fellow in the School of Engineering at the University of Glasgow. And I'm glad to say he joins us now. Dr. Richard, these have been very spectacular uh, uh, pictures and footage. What, what happened? Is this the first time La Palma has gone up in smoke? No, I mean, good, good evening, George. Um, thanks for having me on. Welcome. Uh, no, uh, Cumbria Vieja has, has, has erupted about eight times in the last uh, 600 years and presumably many times before that. Um, so it makes it quite an active volcano, even though it's not erupted in about the last 40 years. Certainly in geological terms, it's, it's quite an active volcano. And is this eruption more dramatic than the one 40 years ago? Um, I don't know particularly, actually. I'm, I've, I've, uh, there's not that much footage from the last one. Um, and I should, I should preface all of my answers by saying that I'm an instrumentalist. So my, my primary role is making uh, uh, technical solutions that could be used to help forecast eruptions. So I'm not a volcanologist by training. Um, so any, any answer I give should be prefaced by, I'm not a volcanologist, uh, but... <laughs> very noble of you to point that out because you're an expert in this company uh, and most of the people watching and listening. Uh, I take that uh, caveat and I'm going to come on to what we can do to predict them. But it would be fair to say we might be able, might, you've played a part in that, to predict them, but we certainly can't stop them, can we? 
No, these, as you say, these things are hugely um, forceful uh, natural events and there's not really anything that you can do. You can't simply, simply damn them. Um, I should also say, I mean, they're, they're very destructive events, but they also provide a lot of life. I mean, La Palma, the island itself, wouldn't exist um, if it wasn't for volcanology. Um, the, the Canary Island sits over a hot spot in the, in the, in the crust um, where, where the, the magma can kind of seep through. Um, so as, as the tectonic plate moves over the top of this hotspot, these island chains are formed. Um, so La Palma owes ex existence to the volcano, um, as well as uh, the fact that it's got very fertile soils from all the volcanic ash. Um, but no, there's, there's nothing we can really do to, to stop them. I take that point too. Uh, but if uh, something really big, like the Yellowstone one, went up, would the consequences be as dire as my friend predicted to me this week? Yeah, I mean, Yellowstone's a, Yellowstone's a scary one. I think amongst my volcanologist friends, I think that's the one they would least likely to want to be present for. Um, I, should, I should point out that Cumbre Vieja isn't, isn't the same sort of volcano. It's not, uh, it's, it's not expected to, to blow in the same way that Yellowstone could. Um, but also, I mean, uh, Yellowstone, if it went up, it could cause a sort of um, a nuclear winter, which could, yeah, as you say, um, darken the skies and things. But that's something that humans, that humankind have survived in, in the past centuries. Um, and, you know, if you're sitting on, if you're going for a holiday in Yellowstone, I wouldn't worry. I mean, it could be something could happen. Um, you know, it might not happen for another thousand years or 10,000 years. So we don't, we don't really know with, uh, um, with, with Yellowstone. It, you know, these things take a very long time on geological scales. Just before we turn to how one might predict them, what are they? I mean, why are they? Why are some volcanoes completely extinct? Some haven't erupted for many centuries, but then do. And others, like this one, I mean, twice in 40 years, is relatively regular. How, what are they? Well, I mean, you've got a few different causes for, for volcanoes. Um, and again, I should go back to my, my previous caveat of my previous training. But um, most volcanoes uh, happen around the edge of tectonic plates where you get subduction of one plate underneath another. Um, and that allows sort of the, the sort of magma from the mantle underneath to, to come through um, and sort of melts the rock at the interface. Um, then you also get these, the ones like in the Canary Islands where you have a, a hot spot. So that's in the, the center of, the, of, the, um, of a tectonic plate. Um, and it's where there's a thinning in the crust. But the premise is that there's, there's, there's hot molten material underneath the crust called the mantle. Um, and it's in the areas where that can kind of sneak through is, is where we get uh, volcanoes. Well, you, you may not be a volcanologist, but you're an extremely clever young man. And one of the things you've come up with is, uh, is uh, a means by which we might better predict them. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm part of a, a team at the University of Glasgow um, of, of, of lots of very clever scientists um, and engineers. And what we've done essentially is to, to take the sort of technology that you have in your mobile phone, you know, the little accelerometer, so when you turn the, the screen sideways, um, the, the, the screen adjusts accordingly. Um, and what's happening there is that there's a tiny little sensor that's measuring which way gravity is. Um, it's basically saying, I can feel the gravitational pull of the Earth. Um, now, you can make, use the same fabrication techniques uh, to make very sensitive uh, instruments where if I were to hold it next to you, George, it could feel your gravitational pull. Um, so you can make these things incredibly sensitive. And if you do that, um, because say you have mass or the, the magma underneath the volcano has mass that's, uh, or a density that's different from the surrounding rocks, 
if you put these on a volcano, you can start to see the density variations and therefore the magma moving up to kilometers underneath the volcano before, before an eruption. And you've miniaturized this. I mean, previously there was uh, machinery that could detect, but it was so massive and bulky, rather like the old computers uh, before we got to the mobile phone. Someone told me you'd miniaturize this to basically a golf ball size. Is that right? Yeah, it's not quite a golf ball size yet. But I mean, I think probably the dominant thing that we've, the main thing that we've done is, um, is, is make it a lot cheaper. I mean, these instruments have been around, well, hundreds of years, if you count uh, the, the pendulum measurements that were, that were first done um, to measure the, the geoid of the earth. But um, no, the, sort of these instruments have been around for maybe, maybe 60 years now. But the problem is that they tend to cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds um, or at least a hundred thousand pounds. So in volcanology, where there's not huge loads of money spent, um, that's a problem. So you can maybe have a single, a single sensor. Um, your, your funding might extend towards that. Um, and you probably have to send a PhD student up to put it down. So you don't want to put anyone in danger. So when the most interesting things are happening, uh, you tend not to have a sensor watching. Um, so what we've done is, is, is yeah, use that technology that lots of other people have, have slowly developed and these fabrication processes um, to make a, a very small device. At the moment, it's about the size of um, I don't know, it's about 30 centimetres across, um, but you can make it about 10 or 100 times cheaper than the existing devices. Um, but the great thing about having um, them cheaper is you can have lots of them. Um, so going back to your mobile phone, if you imagine you had a single pixel camera, it's just a light meter. It doesn't tell you very much at all. But if you can have tens or hundreds of um, uh, pixels, gravity measuring pixels, and wrap them around the volcano, you start to create an image like you do with your, the camera on your phone. Um, so what we want to be able to do in the long run, and we're, we're doing this now in a collaboration called Newton G um, with lots of European collaborators down at Mount Etna um, in Sicily, is we're networking these things around an active volcano. Um, and we've just started taking measurements about a month ago. So we'll watch this space for, for what we start to see with these devices down there. Definitely. And I'm, I'm so glad as the former member of parliament for Glasgow University that you're, you're, you're blazing a, a trail here. Why is so little spent on uh, volcanology? One would have thought, given its potentially existential uh, nature, uh, that people would be very keen indeed to invest on uh, trying to avoid catastrophe. Indeed. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, there's, to take a cynical view, there's not too much money to be, to be made from volcanoes. But I think, I think when you look at it, there's, uh, governments do, do with um, active volcanoes um, do spend quite a bit of money. Um, one of the main problems, though, is that uh, uh, eight out of ten of the, um, the countries that are most at risk to um, volcanoes um, or volcanic, volcanic accidents um, are on the UK's Overseas Development Agency list. Um, so potentially they don't have the money to spend. Um, so that's why making cheap sensors is, is a good way to go. And there's, you know, the, the sort of the technology to develop these things didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago. And the same with lots of other really cool um, instruments and sensors that are coming online. So I see, I see the future being um, the case that you can have lots of different means of, of seeing inside a volcano and that will give you more information. Um, and if, you know, at different volcanoes, if you get uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes warning, that, that could help get people out of the way um, and try to hopefully save lives. So the future's orange, as they uh, say, hopefully not a, a ball of orange fire. Dr. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. 
It's been a, a rare pleasure uh, to Thanks, discuss Thanks for your this time. with you. That was Dr. Richard Middlemiss of the Royal Academy of Engineering Research at uh, Glasgow University. This is important. Moats, the podcast, is again a chart-topping hit all over the world. I know I can hardly believe it either. Every week I see these new stats. Last week, we were in the top charts in Egypt and in Singapore. So you can now add South Africa, Hong Kong, and Nigeria, where we were in the top of the charts. And we're the second most listened to political podcast in the UAE. How interesting is that? So if you're not yet listening to our podcast, subscribe so you can take Moats on the go with you. And do leave us a five-star review. If you're a Spotify user, please follow us and share with your friends. This is the distilled version of this show. So not three hours, but 90 minutes. The very best bits of the show. Uh, so please uh, mention it to others for whom a three-hour show might be uh, too Hey you, long. do you want to know more of what's happening in the world right now? Of course you do. But getting to the heart of the story, well, that's going to take some hard work. That's why here at the Mother of All Talk Shows, we've created that program just for you. Hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds. Get a perspective, an education on stories from all around the world, dissected and discussed with you. Join our debate, vote in our polls on Twitter, tweet a question to George, or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about. Join the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Hosted by one of the world's greatest orators, the mother of all talk shows, with George Galloway. Let's make sense of the world together. Well, 4,000 people voted in our poll. I think that might be a record. Uh, the result was actually, from my point of view, personally, less bad than I had feared that it would be when I saw that the editor had chosen such a stark binary question, which was, after the murder of Sir David Amos, should the death penalty be brought back? A, yes, 55%, B, no, 45%. And that's before I launched a campaign to persuade you to vote no. Uh, so uh, that's uh, an interesting snapshot. Uh, not quite as clear-cut as I feared that it would be. The second poll is also now up. Will COP26 save the planet? That's uh, the environmental jamboree uh, that's happening in Glasgow, uh, in, which, in which politicians are flying in their jets, other grandees in their private jets, being driven around in gas-guzzling limousines to discuss saving the planet. Give me peace. Really, will COP26 save the planet? You have your say. A, yes, B, no, another binary question. Uh, now, if I'm honest, if someone harmed any of my loved ones, I would want swift and brutal justice. The problem is for me that I don't trust the state 
not to abuse that power. So there is a conflict between what I know I would personally feel and a wider moral context. It isn't, by the way, uh, a deterrent at all. As Rachel Blevins would be able to tell us, uh, on the line now from the United States, my dear colleague and friend, Rachel Blevins. Welcome back, Rachel. We miss you when you're not here. I promise you that. Let's deal with that point first. There's no sign that hanging people, gassing people, shooting people, and electrocuting people in the electric chair, A, does anything to deter murders in the United States, and B, if we were to start talking now about the number of innocent people that have been fried, uh, it wouldn't stand up to much examination, this case uh, that's being made for the return of the death penalty, would it? Oh, absolutely. I agree. And I know here in the United States, especially in a state like Texas, where I'm from, the death penalty is quite common. And in a case where you're looking at a brutal murder, it is for many people easy to make that argument that they should go for the death penalty. But then when you actually look at just how often they get it wrong and it is insane to think about them getting it wrong even once, let alone how often they do get it wrong and how many wrongfully convicted people not only spend decades in prison here in the United States, because we do have the largest prison population in the world, of course, us talking about how we're such a wonderfully free country, but that is something that the U.S. has built up to. But in addition to that, they also have a number of wrongful convictions and a number of people who are killed, and then they find out later down the line that either they were not the one who committed that murder or that there was someone else that they should have been going after. And so I agree in that sense of you look at a case like this, but at the end of the day, you know, you have to remember, like you said, it is the state that's carrying it out. And it's shameful how often the state not only gets it wrong, but then faces no consequences for getting it wrong. Now, Joe Biden this week uh, made one of his, uh, his supersonic flights uh, at the uh, dispatch box. I don't know which box he was at, but I saw clips uh, of his uh, video in which he appeared to lift off over the subject of democracy. He said there were fewer democracies uh, than there had been 20 years before. He didn't make the case for how wonderful democracy is uh, because that would be difficult. Uh, he didn't explain why the United States has put so much effort into destroying other people's democracies and killing their leaders, by the way. Uh, the, uh, the president of, uh, of the Congo, Patrice Lumumba, the president of Chile, Salvador Allende, uh, the mm -hmm. attempts to kill uh, the president of Venezuela, uh, the uh, Nicolas Maduro, and so on. He didn't explain any of that. Um, but wouldn't the American people not be better off attending to what is happening in their own country than endlessly talking about other people's political system? You know, you said he didn't explain that. I'm not sure that he could explain that, George. I mean, you look at Joe Biden and he struggles to answer the most basic questions, let alone why U.S. foreign policy is the way that it is. But I would agree. Absolutely. I mean, you look at what the United States has done, especially over the last two decades, especially when you look at the Middle East and you ask yourself, what has come out of it? I mean, is the United States better off? Because not only is it invading countries, bombing countries, overthrowing leaders, 
and killing innocent people, countless innocent people along the way. But in addition to that, it's also spending a hefty amount of money to do that, money that would be better spent here in this country, taking care of the people here. And it really makes you wonder why this is something that has continued. You know, it's not a Republican or a Democrat thing. It's something that has continued on both sides of the aisle. It's something that, you know, Joe Biden has invested heavily in as he claims he spent 150 years in Congress or something <laughs> around there. We're but, not know, making this up. The- he really did say that. <laughs> Yes, according to him, he's been there for much longer than the rest of us, that's for sure. But, you know, it seems to be one of those things where even the presidential candidates that go in there and say, you know, you look at someone like Trump that sits there and says, we need to end the endless wars. And then all of a sudden you have his administration convincing him trying to overthrow Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. I mean, it really makes you wonder, are they not getting it? Or is there just more to the story in terms of this political machine that they become a part of? And it was interesting this week to see that uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken made a comment in which he was referring to Iran and he said, all options are on the table, including military action. And that reminded me of a phrase that was used by Mike Pompeo so often. And we're supposed to think that these two guys are on absolute opposite sides of the aisle, yet they're sitting there saying, all options are on the table. Military action possibly is on the table that the United States is willing to start another war that it does not need. And it just comes back at the end of the day to how is this better for the American people? I would argue that it's not. Well, absolutely, uh, it's not. Uh, I watched a fascinating interview by our colleague, Afshan Ratansi, with uh, former Secretary, uh, Secretary uh, Bolton, John Bolton. Now, it was an act of madness, uh, Trump appointing him uh, to these uh, high positions. Uh, but it was very, very clear that Bolton's attack on Trump was because Trump was not crazy for war enough. Yeah. Oh, yes. And that's what's so interesting is you get someone like, and I know that that's kind of been a criticism that has come up back again, which is to say, look, if Trump runs for president again, if he wins, we really need to talk about his cabinet picks because there were so many things he campaigned on. And then when it came to choosing his cabinet, it was the opposite. He chose people that believed the opposite of what he claimed that he believed. And then you have someone like Biden who comes in and everyone was just standing there and cheerleading for his cabinet picks because they talked about how diverse they were because they were looking at their gender or looking at the color of their skin and not at all looking at the fact that the one thing that both Trump and Biden have in common is that they are picking these establishment picks who will continue to carry out the exact same foreign policy and even in many cases the same domestic policies that have been going on for decades now and that never really change anything even though we all want to talk about how different the president is from the last one. What about the former first family? They've been in the news uh, this week. Bill is in hospital, uh, uh, apparently with poisoned blood, who would have thunk it? Uh, And we saw Hillary uh, hurrying in and out of the hospital. I hope they were careful to uh, keep her away from the, uh, the switches and the, uh, the lifelines. Um, she, on the other hand, has now become uh, an author, a crime author, is it? A novel. Yeah, you know, the Clintons just can't seem to stay out of the news, I guess. And it was interesting with Bill Clinton. They immediately said it's not COVID-19. I guess he had some sort of 
urological infection. They say that he was released from the hospital just a couple of hours ago, so it sounds like he's doing okay. But yeah, meanwhile, Hillary is over here becoming some sort of crime thriller novel author. Now, they're calling this fiction, but the book itself, it sounds like, is about a secretary of state who was appointed by her former rival, which is something that Hillary Clinton knows a lot about. So yes, they're referring to it as fiction, but it is interesting to see this new book that she apparently co-authored is all about terrorist attacks and you know what you would do as a secretary of state and that sort of position. And it's a reminder that this is what we do with former politicians. This is what we do with U.S. war criminals like Hillary Clinton, like George W. Bush. The media loves to sort of rehabilitate them and make it look like they're all warm and cozy, like your older grandparents. And with Hillary Clinton, they're like, look at her. She can write a book. Well, there's not much talk about all that she did, specifically while she was Secretary of State alone, all of the crimes that she committed, you know, when we're talking about Libya, when we're talking about her wanting to go further after Syria, everything that she did while she was with the Obama administration. I mean, I would love the nonfiction version of that where she's actually honest <laughs> about good. all of the roles that she played in that administration and all of the people that died as a result of it. Yeah, that would be crime nonfiction, uh, a different <laughs> category uh, altogether. Just as an aside, is a, a novel by Hillary Clinton likely to sell well? You know, I think that it would with a certain, you know, a certain population of people. It's likely to make the New York Times bestseller list just because that's much more about who you know, who's publishing you, that sort of thing. And, you know, she may be more uh, popular at that, so to speak, than she would be a number, at a number of other things. The question this then becomes then, is she going to try to get back into politics, which hopefully the answer there is no, because I think she's tried her hand at that a few times and gotten the exact same results every single time. But you never know. I, I don't know what it is with the Clintons and why they feel the need to get back into the spotlight. You would think that people like them, with the kind of money they have, that they would sell off into the sunset, go live on an island and retire happily there but instead they're here giving us photo shoots from hospitals and crime novels apparently. The, the devil never sleeps uh, <laughs> let me assure you uh, finally talking of people coming back into politics because we know nothing about what Donald Trump does nowadays because he's banned uh, from all the uh, public spaces as they used to be called the public squares um, what's the latest on Trump What's he been up to this week? You know, he's still having a number of rallies this week. He's actually going to be deposed. He's going to testify before court virtually, rather, on a case of, it sounds like that there's a few protesters. They claim that they were roughed up by Trump's security team outside of the Trump Tower back in 2015. Now, you may wonder, why are we talking about this case? It sounds like it's just now coming back around six years later. And there are a number of kind of lawsuits that Trump is facing. And so I think that we're much more likely to see more of that and to maybe see more testimony from as we go along. But we still have not gotten an announcement on whether or not he's going to run. I'm still waiting to see what he's going to do, how he's going to do it. And of course, then it all comes down to if he decides he's running, which running name is he going to pick this time? Because I highly doubt it's going to be Mike Pence. Uh, totally. Uh, it's impossible that it should be him. <laughs> I, I think a, a, a good, I know you're not a gambling woman, but if you were, uh, the the uh, the governor of Florida would be the man to put your money on, don't you think? 
See, I would think that he would be, but he may actually try to take Trump on. I think that he's built up a lot of favor in terms of his response to the pandemic over the last year. You know, there's been a lot of frustration with a number of governors, such as the one that we've seen in the New York City and the way that they handled it. And Florida has kind of been one of those states, especially for Republicans who, you know, those who felt like they didn't get the fair outcome of the 2020 election. And now they're watching the way that the U.S. government has handled the pandemic, the lockdowns that they have put out there, and they don't trust the way that it was handled. Sure, they're going to go after someone like DeSantis, and he is going to be their guy. But of course, if if Trump is the one who overtakes him, then I could see him maybe signing on for a vice presidential role in the hopes that that'll, you know, advance his career later on down the road. Yeah, I mean, uh, just as we've said about Joe Biden, uh, a second Donald Trump administration won't feature Donald Trump at the head of it for a whole term unless he's Superman. But if he was Superman, he'd now be kissing guys uh, who would have thunk that either. <laughs> Rachel Blevins, thanks for joining us on the Mother Thank of All you. Talk Shows. Thank you. Will COP26 save the planet? Yes, a mighty 4% of you. I told the editor this. Nobody will vote yes. No, 96%. Come on, I want to see that 99. I'm joined, of course, by the irrepressible young James Giles at this hour. Let's start with that. James, you're a young person. Do you think this COP26 is much COP? I really don't at all. I mean, all it, of course, is doing is sending world leaders thousands of miles on aeroplanes, generating yeah, CO2. Yeah, well, I couldn't have done it by video, by Zoom. Well, that would have made far more sense, not only because of the pandemic, but also in light of the goal they're supposedly trying to achieve. But given that, you know, some really main, uh, major global players are not coming to COP26, Russia, China, and others too... Uh, there really is very little point. There'll be no matters of substance agreed that will be of any use to save the planet, as your poll says. And so really, it's just a talking shop that not only will generate a load of CO2 from travel, but also generate a huge amount of hot air very from well all the said. people in the room. Why did Boris Johnson agree to hold it in Glasgow? There are several reasons why he might not have. One of them is that Glasgow, I say this as someone who lived there and represented Glasgow in Parliament for many years, has never been dirtier in my lifetime. And Glasgow was once really, you know, no mean city. Uh, but rats are running wild. The bin men are on strike, not least because they're endangered by the rats. Uh, the uh, railway workers are on strike. And, of course, it's giving his potential nemesis, or would-be nemesis, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, a day in the sun. Why do that? Well, I think it's a foolish move, but it's a move, I would imagine, that was made some time ago before the rubbish really began mounting up and all the rest of it. But, I mean, there's benefits in the one hand. You know, Boris Johnson, if it goes well, can say, you know, this is what we've achieved in the union, this is global Britain, of course, you know, a post-Brexit Britain that's reaching out to the world on a global mission to reduce uh, carbon emissions. But the reality is that it really won't achieve much. It will cost a huge amount to the taxpayer. There's a no-fly zone that's being imposed across the entire central belt. Joe Biden himself is staying just outside of Edinburgh 
and will need to be helicoptered in to these meetings in Glasgow. So the airspace is reserved for President Biden. And so it's really only generating uh, carbon emissions and to very little gain, I think, for Boris Johnson and indeed the country. Why are the Russians and the Chinese not coming? Um, well, the Chinese haven't completely ruled out sending a delegation, but the Chinese Premier won't himself be attending. Um, perhaps the because they feel attacked? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, you know, China has been in the news a huge amount since announcing that Xi Jinping wouldn't be attending. Um, it's not perhaps the best way to foster good relations uh, between Britain and China or the world and China, but uh, ultimately there will be nothing of substance that can be agreed. And so what is the point, really, in any country sending your head of state to a summit where it's just a talking shop? You know, send a delegation by all means, but there's nothing actually on the table of substantive nature that will make a difference to reducing global emissions. Now, of course, uh, Parliament moves on, British politics moves on, even after such an horrific uh, crime as was committed on Friday with Sir David Amos. Um, you've got news, I think, about the by-election, which will inevitably have to be held in the stead of, uh, of Sir David the other parties are not going to contest it. Well, Labour and the Liberal Democrats have announced that they won't be fielding a candidate. I personally think that's only right and proper. Of course, when the late Joe Cox was uh, murdered in 2016 in Batley and Spen, uh, none of the major parties stood in the subsequent by-election in honour of her memory. And indeed, David Amos was an MP that was respected across the House, you know, regardless of one's politics. Almost everyone who met him can agree that he was a thoroughly decent. He was very likable. No, no, I don't know anyone that didn't like him. Indeed, and so, including the workers in the building, by the way, which is always a good yardstick. Absolutely, and so Labour and the Liberal Democrats have already announced this. I would imagine the Greens to follow suit uh, very shortly. You'll of course get the fringe nutters, frankly, standing in Batley and Spen. You had the English Democrats standing a party called Liberty GB. Um, so, you know, you can expect the Britain firsts of this world to be putting up candidates. The far right will put up candidates um, because and indeed, they'll try to turn it into a, into a, a race war, a well, religion uh, war. Of course, you can expect probably Jada Franson and a few other ugly faces turning up, in addition to probably a host of independents who fancy their chances in a by-election. But it's only really right and proper, I think, that the main parties do stand aside. I mean... The man was murdered. You know, he's not resigned to take yeah, up one job. You see, a lot job. of people are asking me uh, online here, what's the difference between why is one man's life more important than another? Here's the difference. He was elected by the people in his area to represent them. He was murdered whilst going about his job to represent them. That's the difference. Other victims of murder were not picked by their whole community to represent them, and then the community was robbed of that by one individual, uh, let's hope it's only one individual, uh, that takes it upon themselves to end that man's life. That's the difference. Oh, it is, but there's, there's a real big point here, which is what happens now for the remaining 648 MPs in Parliament. Of course, James Brokenshire also tragically passed away from cancer. So for the other 648 currently sitting... What now? Because, you know, lots of them rightly don't feel safe in their communities. There's a lack of close protection when MPs are out and about in their constituency. But there's a real tightrope here that I think 
it's a difficult balance to get right. You want MPs to be accessible to the public. You want them out and about in communities. But equally, you know, it's not right that anyone should be unsafe doing their job, doing their duties. And so the government really needs to take a quick but hard think about what to do when it comes to MP security. Well, look, um, you can ha I did surgeries for nearly 30 years. I'm not going to mythologize them. Uh, many of the cases were hopeless cases. Many of them were not really my job in the first place. Many of them were councillor's business rather than parliamentary business. I'm not going to uh, idealize or mythologize them. But if you're going to do it and the public want it, it's quite clear from the numbers that come, why can't you have a police officer with a PSO, police support officer, with a metal detector, going, running the, over the public as they come in. There are many shops, clubs, football grounds, where you have to get metal detected. Why not do that? That's quite simple. It's only three hours, four hours on a Friday or a Saturday. Well, indeed, it would make sense. And in addition to that measure, which actually wouldn't be a hugely costly measure no. either, MPs also, I think, need to reevaluate how they go about doing surgeries. David Amos was proud to have an open-door policy, so anyone could literally turn up, as this gentleman did, to his surgery. Are you sure about that? Because yeah. I read reports that he had been planning this for a week. They know this because he was in touch with uh, the MP's office a week before and made an appointment. Well, indeed, and David's policy was that you could make an appointment and he'd see appointments first, but he also had an open-door policy. Okay. And many MPs, especially now coming out of COVID, are holding outdoor street surgeries, and all of that will need to be re-evaluated in light of this. You know, is it still safe for an elected representative to be out on the streets talking to the public? And I think the discourse that's come in recent months from people like Angela Rayner thinking namely of the Tory scum incident, really does nothing to actually try and build a gentler politics and, frankly, a more human politics. And, of course, uh, the punishment scarcely fits the crime. Uh, in my own case, as you know, uh, someone was tried for thrice online, threatening to put a bullet through my head, and the punishment <laughs> was community service. Indeed. I mean, well, what, why is that not an imprisonable offence? To threaten three times to put a bullet through the head of a candidate in an election? Well, there's not really much that can be said about that. I mean, it's, it's a petty um, sentence for what is a very serious offence. And the police can't possibly have known whether or not that threat or any threat that is received by a candidate or someone in elected office is if you can call it a joke or not serious, or whether they are actually going to follow through on it. And it's yeah. impossible to tell. And so, therefore, the police have a responsibility to treat every such threat seriously, or yeah. at least, in my mind, anyway, that would be logical. Let's hear from Samuel in Manchester. Go ahead, Samuel. Hello, George. Can you hear me OK? Yeah, very clear. Go ahead. Uh, thank you for having me on, Samuel. Um, George. Um, I've followed your work for many years. Don't agree with you on everything, but I agree with you on a lot of things. Um, for some context, I'm an 18 to 25-year-old. Uh, I'm in that age group. There's a lot of people in my age group who claim they're on the left. Okay? Yeah. 
Um, they're into, you know, identity politics. They're into wokedom. They're into, um, you know, putting um, things on their Instagram stories of a vaguely activistic band, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my question to you is, if you're, what would your advice be to someone, you know, who's against imperialism, against foreign wars, against the erosion of civil liberties, um, you know, against economic injustices, these kind of things, you know, traditional left-winger, surrounded by people who claim to be on the left, but are really into virtue signalling and identity politics, and, you know, um, not wanting to build movements, just wanting to sound good and sound cool and sound rebellious and, and accuse people of being privileged or something. How would you organise 18 to 25-year-olds who either think being left is being woke and being into identity politics, not being into sort of real material issues and foreign and domestic policies, or who have been put off the left because they think that's what it is. How well, brilliant, you... uh, Samuel. Uh, that could have been me speaking. I wish I was 18 to 25 uh, and as wise as you. Uh, what I'd say is they should get in touch with me. I'm trying my best to organise such people. Uh, thanks for the call. Let's go to Caroline in Glasgow. Caroline, welcome. Good evening. Good evening, George. It's about the protocol and the two-thirds of Ulster. Yeah. The DUP voting to leave the EU. Yeah. I personally believe that they were hoping for a hard border. Right? They were hoping for a hard border to get a 300-mile watchtower with barking dogs again. Well, we both know that that is never going to happen because the GFA, it's an international law, not an English or a British law. It cannot and never will be broken. Now, what annoys me is I heard an English MP, I forget his name, saying that they never thought about Ireland, Northern Ireland, they never thought about it at all. Right? They never even thought about what would happen over there. And when you see the people writing, it's always been the same. They never thought about it. Hence why 50 years ago, the loyalists and the unionists were getting two, 10 and 20 votes because they rented homes out to the nationalist people. Those days are long gone, right? And the gerrymandering, what they done 100 years ago to always keep them in power, that's gone too because they did breed them out. One touch of a button being Google will tell you that. You know what I'm talking about, George. They, right, all that, as you said once, I heard you saying it to a toll cross man. Under orange terrorist threats, the place was gerrymandered. Right, all that shouting about Jerry Adams and that other one, Jerry Kelly, the biggest Jerry of them all was gerrymandering. That's a good we line. That. That's a good line. Right. That's a good line to quit on, Caroline. That one will live. The biggest Jerry of the lot was gerrymandering. Ian in Hounslow, go ahead, Ian. Hello, George. Uh, it's just in the wake of the murder of David Amos. Yeah. There seems to be, from Pretty Detail, some kind of knee-jerk reaction. And I've got a feeling some exploitative manoeuvres from other politicians who really don't want to subject themselves to legitimate or robust criticism. Okay. Now, the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command was set up in the wake of the Joe Cox murder. And from that command... We've had one rapist charged, one rapist and murderer charged. Now, it's not going very well. Do we really want a Latter-day Praetorian Guard or a Schutzstaffel set up? Um, we, I don't think David Amos would want that. I've never met him, but I've watched him on the parliamentary channel. 
challenging committees, certainly on um, on crime, and uh, I didn't don't think that's what he'd agreed to. Well, look, uh, uh, you know, David Amos is is gone now. We shouldn't uh, speak ill of his memory and the circumstances. Uh, he would have taken a different line to me, maybe to you, uh, on these uh, matters. Uh, I don't even know if he would have stood up uh, against the anti-free speech uh, initiatives, knee-jerk initiatives that are beginning to percolate out. I don't know. It would be wrong for me to speculate uh, about that. What I do know is that if we are to defend our democracy, the front line is the right freely to speak and express ourselves. Because if we don't have that, if that is cancelled underneath our feet, we can no longer call ourselves a democracy. It will be a managed uh, democracy, a managed political system, where only those uh, within the bandwidth of uh, the prevailing orthodoxy will be permitted to disagree about the most minor of aspects, and anyone who takes a fundamental uh, uh, disagreement or difference with that prevailing orthodoxy will be increasingly pushed to the side. And then we eventually won't be a democracy uh, at all. Uh, the person that killed David Amos was not a refugee. Uh, he was not even an immigrant, I think. Although I may be wrong on that latter point. But you're quite correct. Um, he was... Uh, the alleged killer was uh, born here. So he's British. So stopping illegal immigration, stopping dinghies coming across from war-torn France to Dungeness is not going to uh, solve a problem of someone who was born here and who is British. That's a problem we have to solve, but it will not be solved by stopping refugees. It will not be helped. Uh, by uh, the landing of hundreds of people in a day of fighting age, uh, some of whom, by no means all, perhaps not even nearly all, some of whom uh, may turn out to be criminals, may turn out to be terrorists. How can we know? How can we possibly know? We've no idea who they are. But they land here, and then they're in a hotel near you and if any of them are bad uh, they will do bad things and if they do bad things that will cause bad problems for people who look like them who worship like them who have every right to be here and indeed in many cases are already born here scott in glasgow go ahead scott yeah, hello, George. Let, hello, George. Let, let's not who, forget who the real instigators of all this are. Matt, Matt can I, if I, before you hold me, can I read out some headlines here? Dan Hodges, Labour must kill vampire Jezza. That was Corbyn pictured lying in the coffin dressed as Dracula. Dracula. That was a mail on Sunday, mail bloody Sunday, right? And there's another one here, the front page headline of the scum. Corbyn is a security risk. I'm going to read out another one. Front page headline of a scum. Apologist for terror. Pictured with uh, Jeremy Corbyn, pictured with Diane Abbott. Another one, front page. We're not talking backroom chats here. We're talking front page, front page headline. 
Jesus, just had a comrade again in the scum, right? Corbyn the commie spy again in the scum. Yeah, this is what, and, and Jess Phillips, I'll stab him in the front. You know, let's like, and no one said a damn word. No one spoke up for Jeremy Corbyn on them times. No one who no one, anyone No one heard. except me. No one except yeah, you me, did. Scott. You did. You did. You did, George. But who else? Who else spoke up, right? And, and the silence. We heard the silence, right? And Corbyn was actually attacked by a so-called Brexit supporter. And as you know, George, he was against the EU from time. But he was attacked by a Brexit supporter. Why? Because of the media in this country, right? It's absolutely disgusting what the media do. You know that. And this is Don't I? I, I can show, you, I can show you my scars. Some of the hypocrites demanding that people be nicer and kinder and gentler are some of the most vicious, vicious, vile attack dogs that we've ever seen in British politics or in the British media. I could give chapter and verse, but time is running. Thanks for the call. Uh, who's next? Is, have we had Richard in Manchester? Richard, go ahead, Rich. Hi, George. Good evening. Thank you very much indeed for having me on your show. Welcome. Go ahead, sir. That young man you got there, James Giles, is a centre-forward for Manchester United in the future. He's a good speaker like yourself. He's a very, very good speaker. He's a Thank clever you, young man. Thanks, he's not as, good as, not as good as you, George, but he's got a long way to go from he's being He's my apprentice. 21. He's my apprentice. <laughs> George, uh, this very, very sad time uh, with, uh, yeah, with David yeah, Amos. Yeah, and, I, I, uh, I was completely uh, floored by it, I must say. And, oh, uh, George. And I immediately, I immediately pictured the worst case, which has turned out to be uh, the actual case. Uh, Going back I, I historically... Knew I, I, I immediately pictured that he would not survive, and I pictured who might have done it, and the reasons they might have done it, and if the Crown uh, allegation uh, is true, then I was right on every count, I'm very sorry to say. Go ahead, Rich. George, um, what is going to happen in the future? This has been going on too long. For 20 years now, these radicalized people have been coming into our country. Everybody knows they're there. There's too many for the police to handle. They have to try, and they have to try, and they have to try. But there are far too many. And when Tony Blair does what he does, um, and he's now advocating to support a, a war against Iran, and notably... That'll work, uh, they, yeah. They, that, they, they, that'll dampen down terrorism around the world. Yeah. Uh, Af yes, <laughs> Indeed, Lebanon, that'll work. I mean, it's yeah. unbelievable. These criminals want to return to the scene of their crimes over and over again, making everything worse. You're spot on, George. And what they've done now is in Afghanistan, they've left 85 billion pounds worth of top killing machines ready for this war to start. I can get in the Shias against the Sunnis uh, with the, with Iran Afghanistan to start with. Well, I, 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 mean, I, 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 I watched uh, John Bolton's interview with Afsan Ratansi uh, yesterday. That's precisely what Bolton has in mind. A sectarian war in Afghanistan spilling over into Iran to bring down the uh, regime in, in Iran. Richard, great call. Sorry, 
we've run out of uh, time. Uh, on the, uh, the point of what happens now, um, the, the intelligence services appear incapable uh, for reasons of resource, maybe, although they've got twice, three times the resource that they used to have, the numbers twice, three times what they used to have at the Cold War. Uh, they obviously need more. If we've got thousands of people that are of concern but can't be watched because the services don't have the resource to watch them, we're going to have to have more. Well, I think you're absolutely right, but here's, here's the thing, and this is what I want to come back on on Richard's call, is, as you said earlier, this is a British-born gentleman. His father, in fact, himself was a political aide. So he's been born and raised in a political environment, but he was known to the police via the Prevent Programme, via the anti-terrorism watch, and yet somehow the watch lapsed on him and he has allegedly gone on to kill, obviously, David Amos. And the police, I think, have got big questions to answer over how someone can go from being on their terror watch list to then just, without any police awareness whatsoever, going to kill an elected representative. I mean, it's, it's the height of failure, I think, for the police. Yeah, it doesn't look good for them. It doesn't look good for the uh, security services. Obviously, we do have a few James Bonds, but we've got rather more... Uh, Austin Powers, and uh, that includes the people running in the, uh, in, in, in the government. Quite. What is likely to happen now? Lessons will be learned and all that. Are they really going to stop MPs actually meeting the public? I don't think you can do that. Uh, the, the answer to an attack on democracy isn't less democracy, as I think Gordon Brown put it on uh, BBC earlier, and, and he's actually spot on. MPs need to be able to meet the public in order to discharge their duties. Otherwise, we'll end up with an American situation where elected representatives never meet their people, as it were, and actually, as a result, democracy is weakened and it's worse off for it, and representation's worse off for it. And so, I do hope not, but the government very quickly need to get to grips with this and need to decide what they are doing to make representing the people safe. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time in the same place. I promise you, it will be again the mother of all talk shows. The podcast had another incredible week with a rise of 14% in total downloads. That's on top of last week's 10% increase, making us not only one of the fastest growing political programs on screens and on radio, but now in podcasts too. We're now one of the top political podcasts, not just in the UK, but also in Switzerland, Japan, Germany, Thailand, Taiwan, and believe it or not, the UAE. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? If you're a Spotify user, please follow us and share with your friends so more people can enjoy most. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.